In this episode, I'm going to interview Veronica and take you on the journey of her first property renovation, warts and all. (laughs) And there are plenty. (laughs) Today, we're talking about Veronica's first renovation journey. She got a lot of things right and a lot of things wrong. So we can all learn from her lessons. Welcome to your first home buyer guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy a workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. But before we get into my lessons, you've got an interesting little collage of houses behind you today, Megan. For those of you watching the video, um, Megan likes to choose a house. You've got one on the top, one on the bottom. What's the difference? So that that was my last renovation. So that's about my ninth Ooh. renovation that I've done. So the bottom one is the big grey elephant with the red roof uh, covered in asbestos and and was bloody horrible to be honest but a really amazing position and that was the finished product that we lived in for about 11 years and sold last year so that that was my last renovation project thought i'd share it with you so that gray elephant was that so the beautiful queenslander at the top lovely weatherboard very pretty double garage you know lovely period detailing etc etc came out of that gray elephant wow that's vision it was in for a great you. position, had great bones, but it had been really, really bastardised over the years and, and it was just about sort of uncovering the features and reinstating some of the character. Um, and it uh, it's, it's, it's a greatly admired house. I, I really love that house. It was a, a fabulous one. So take us back, Veronica. Why did you decide you wanted to buy a house to renovate? Okay, so we go right back to 2002, Okay. I started in property in 2000. So I'd been by this stage of the, towards the end of 2002, I'd been in the real estate industry for about two and a half years. And I was doing well, obviously, because I was able to buy an investment property. And I wanted to renovate mainly because I was working in an area where there was a lot of gentrification going on. I could see that people were were making great gains by transforming these little cottages and semi-detached cottages and terraces, et cetera into something more substantial. So Mm. I sort of had it in my brain that this is what I wanted to do. And I got finance and I had a cap of $500,000. That was my my limit. Everyone would dream of that now, but we are talking a long time (laughs) ago. 
And, you know, I went out looking for the property to do that to, right? And that's the reason. I, I had no skills in renovating. Mind you, my partner at the time was a builder, but he wasn't the type of builder that literally hands-on strip on the tool belt. He, he had a construction company. So, you know, they built office blocks and industrial units and stuff like that. So Very different style of, of Very building. different mm. style. And, in fact, um, you know, whilst I did sort of talk to him about this idea, I was full of can-do attitude, put it that way. I wasn't necessarily <laughs> full of... <laughs> You are no shrinking violet. <laughs> no shrinking violet. Didn't necessarily have a great handle on what was involved. The, I did make a couple of mistakes in the purchasing side of things. Now, bear in mind, I was a sales agent at this point of time. And so I had this belief that I definitely do not have now, which was, you know, all property is fine as long as you buy it at the right price, right? <laughs> um, I also did not fully appreciate why you needed to do all your due diligence, which is something that you and I talk about and teach in your first home buyer guide. And I was hell bent on trying to time the market. Now, how often do we get asked, is now a good time to buy? Mm. You know, when should we buy? Oh, d- d- just about every other day, I think. Every time we run a workshop, every time we have listener questions, every time we, we, we have people who run into us at a barbecue. Yep. So it's like where to buy, number one question. Second one, oh, should I buy now? Is now a good time? Is mm. now a good time. And there's a, an answer for that is, well, you buy when you're ready and you buy when you find the right property. But I was hell-bent on trying to buy before the end of the year because I'd been through two cycles by this stage, you know, in, in terms of our local area, and, and every area has a cycle, an annual cycle, right? Mm. So I've been through two seasonal cycles, but they're seasonal not cycles, market not cycles. cycles. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So I thought I knew it all because I'd seen two seasonal cycles. And I knew that the, basically the property market slows down in spring and there's lots more stock, there's uh, you know compressed price growth, there's less competition, and I wanted to take advantage of that. But what that actually meant that I was, um, I had a bias towards buying for the right timing rather than buying the right mm. asset. And so oh. I did buy a property that looked, did okay for me over time. It was a semi-detached house in a great street, right? And it was probably the worst house in the Great Street. But buying the worst house in the Great Street isn't always the best. Actually, it was it's the not second worst house. The winner. It's the second worst house. You know, it was the second worst house because the worst house was next door. <laughs> and the worst house came to bite I feel me in like the bum. A story there. <laughs> it came to bite me in the bum when I went to sell it. But anyway, that's that's for later on. <laughs> so I, I the mistakes that I made is that I was trying to be clever and time the market rather than focusing on the actual asset itself. And I did okay, but I could have done better. And the other mistake was that I did not properly do my due diligence. I didn't even know what I needed to know. And I was a sales agent, thought I knew it all. Oh, that's such a classic, isn't it? Because, and and that's, I guess, the basis of us even putting together your first time buy guide was you don't know what you don't know. So there you were, you're actually in the industry. Mm. You'd been a sales agent for two years. You'd watched two seasonality cycles, but actually hadn't been through any market cycles. It was all probably going the same direction in that whole time that you were yeah, starting, which was, it was up. It was hot. Yeah, it was hot. It was hot at that point in time. So we've got we've got a bit of um, a bit of recency biases, perhaps thinking that this is always going yes. to go in this direction, and some assumptions that weren't necessarily based on um, you know the correct due diligence or, or knowing what you didn't know. So. Some pretty good lessons in there already. Where, where did we go from there? 
So, pretty so you bought much, it. You've got I did it. buy it. I bought it at auction, and um, you know, I was I was not deterred at all by the fact that it was really nobody else bidding. Um, it was before <laughs> no one else wanted it in a hot market. Yeah, we talk about that. <laughs> yes, it it's was. Easy to buy. It's hard to sell. That's it. It was a little a little too easy to buy. I mean, part of that was the market at the time. You did that seasonality, but yes, yes, there were. As I said, there were some warning signs that I failed to take take heed of. Now, I got the plans approved. So I went and got an architect involved. I got the plans approved to do what I wanted to do. Actually, that process was a lot easier than I anticipated. You know, there was a uh, reputation of that local council was pretty fierce, and so I really sort of girded my loins and expected it to be a lot harder. So that was that was. actually relatively easy and potentially because I didn't get any objections from the neighbour next door that I mentioned earlier, but uh, <laughs> other people who are a bit more house proud might have objected and might have made my <laughs> pathway to approval a little bit more difficult. But in that was process, so I, the owners living there? Well, the, the house next door was, um, it's public housing. It's the only public owned house in social, social housing, social the housing. only socially owned house in that street. And I don't, necessarily have objection to that it was more the fact that it um you know effectively it was being occupied by a hoarder and had been for many many years so i my assumption was that i looked at that house and just assumed that it was an old sort of italian or greek person that owned it because it was it was had some interesting detailing to it and um, a lot of concrete, right? So I just made this <laughs> assumption that it was an old migrant's house. I didn't even uh, check, you know, no. and I may or may not have continued to buy it. I don't know, but I didn't even check. I just made that assumption, which is ridiculous, right? You know what assumptions make? You didn't know what you didn't know. Didn't know what I didn't know. Assumptions make an ass out of you and me. Did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, daggy, that's a mum joke. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> I made some assumptions and I missed out on some other aspects of due diligence, one of the which uh, was that I couldn't actually do what I originally intended. The block was long. It was quite a long, big block for the area. It was 211 square metres. In the area that I was buying in, the average was about 186, so that was a bit bigger than average, which is great, but it was long and skinny and right. it tapered off. So not much frontage? It was wider at the front than it was at the back. It was oh, like this so, okay. long, skinny mm-hmm. wedge, mm-hmm. right, which meant that it tapered off so much at the end that it was only two metres wide at the very end of the block, right? So it's a bit useless when you've got a block that's two metres wide at its narrowest point. Um, but what it actually meant was because the block narrowed, what I originally intended to do was actually renovating two stages. I wanted to open, open up downstairs, make an open plan, have a two-bedroom, one-bathroom house with a big open plan, kitchen, dining, living, and then go upstairs in the future to put a main bedroom and bathroom up there. That was the plan. That was what I thought I could do. Mm. And it became quickly evident to me that the block narrowed at exactly the wrong point, that I couldn't make it long enough to have two bedrooms and all the living downstairs. I had to actually put one bedroom downstairs and two bedrooms upstairs, which meant that it was never going to be a two-stage renovation, always had to be a one-stage renovation. Mm. So that was one one mistake. Now, in the end, it didn't matter, but it did. that was an assumption I made that I didn't check. The second one is, is actually in a flood zone. Now, <laughs> In a hundred, one and a hundred year flood zone. The like information it, was much harder to come by in 2002. Let's be, uh, let's not, be realistic. Not in you would have had to it, go to council rather than actually find it online. No, no, no. It was in the, it, true. Actually, that is true. However, that is in a, in a zoning document, which is part of the contract. So therefore. Right. Oh, that's yeah. right because you have much more disclosure in New South That's exactly right. In okay. Queensland might have been harder to come by. In much harder to come by. Not. <laughs> 
Now, the, and look, in the end of the day, that's never flooded there. And even some of the massive torrential rain we've had in years gone by where there's been other areas that flooded that never flooded before to people's knowledge and it's still never flooded. So that wasn't really an issue. It's just that it meant that there was an extra consultant's cost. So I had to pay for a hydraulic engineer's uh, report at a cost of $3,000, really, which is a bit silly given that the house is already there. And <laughs> it's just that, you know, councils will just have all these Boxes you got to tick and say, well, the house is already there. I said, mm. what if I don't extend downstairs? What if I keep exactly the same footprint? No, it's still got to do the report. So mm. it was like that just meant a report really for nothing yeah, given that the house was already know. there. Mm. Like it might have been about 1% of your final contract price. Yeah, look, it wasn't mm. huge in the whole scheme of things, but still three grand, three grand, mm. isn't it? Um, there's a party wall. Now, it's a semi-detached house, right? So, And that's fine because you can still renovate terraces and semi-detached houses and I learned about a party wall and you've got to use uh, or if you can use the party wall for support so the party wall is the wall that joins two houses together it's the wall in between the one you share and I was going up now if we had an easement on that so it's a it's a legal term right but it's a right of use or whatever that had been agreed between the two halves or the owners of the houses then i would have been able to use that party wall for support for my upper story but instead the neighbor wouldn't agree so i had to put in extra support so it didn't mean i didn't couldn't do it it just meant that you know one of those things if there's an easement there you go great i'm not going to have to pay extra money to support the upper story, I'm going to be able to use the wall that's there, but because the neighbour wouldn't agree, I had to pay more money. So there's just things to know, you know. And that, that can be picked up in the the documents that are provided in the sale contract. So if there's an easement on a party wall, which is the joining wall, yeah. um, that's often how uh, it's dealt with so that each property remains freehold rather than having any kind of body corporate levies or or agreements or bylaws that govern that shared wall. So there's a couple of different ways of doing it. You've got to understand whether it's, an easement and it's freehold or if it's group title and it's it's part of um, common property. Now, in New South Wales and probably in Victoria as well, because it's quite common to have terrace houses and semis, which mm. you don't sort of have so much in Brisbane. Yeah. So here in the older style property, it's the easement has to have been applied for at some point and agreed to. So it's actually really common to get the ter- a row of terraces, no easements whatsoever. Um, in fact, some terraces, not there's just a bit of a side issue here, but some terraces have no firewall up in the attic. So if they've never been renovated, there is yep. you can go through one manhole in one house and you can crawl along the rafters and climb in through. the Yeah, oh, yeah. Surprise. <laughs> yes. Wouldn't that be an interesting one to drop into your bathroom one day? Yeah, no, that definitely wasn't the, the issue here. But the other thing was the fence line, right? So I got a survey. And when you get a um uh when you get plans approved and you go to an architect or however you're going to get your plans drawn up, the first thing you need to do is get a survey. So I got that survey and I because it's very rare that they are available in the contract of sale mm. and it's certainly it's not a, a mandatory document anywhere to, to have a survey, but it's a good idea to get one. And so that survey, if I just bothered looking at it, I would have noticed that fence was not on the boundary. So, and it's not uncommon for this sort of thing to happen. People just mm. build the fence. And I didn't actually notice this until I actually got the builder on board, by the way. But the thing is with the sur- with the fence line, and I'd actually, that's when I discovered who actually owned the house next door was because the fence needed replacing. And my property manager found the owners and then turned out to be government department. So they paid for half the new fence and I paid for half the new fences before we did the renovation. 
And, um, and of course, it just got replaced where it was. Now, when I actually walked through the property, stepped through the property with the builder for the first time to go, right, and this is what gets extended and this is where the, the kitchen goes and blah, blah, blah. And they went, well, that's going to be interesting because it looks like the wall of your house is on the same spot as the fence. And I thought, well, that shouldn't be right. That's when I got the survey out and went, <laughs> oh, the whole no. fence was a metre onto my land. which meant that that house next door, all of their services, so like their hot water system, what else was there? There was a few other things bolted to their wall were actually overhanging my property. So they they had to move them all and I actually put the fence where it was meant to be. It wasn't that simple, but we we got there in the end. But, yeah, at one point I had a bit of dispute because they didn't want me to move the fence even though I couldn't actually do my renovation without moving it. Well, yeah, the, I mean, you can put your fence on the fence line, but you've got to know where that boundary is by doing the survey. So there's, yeah. there's, there's a good tip. Not many people do surveys as part of the purchasing process. Well, and what's the main reason for that? Cost. And time. Time, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to do. Particularly if you market. are renovating or are planning to extend or put in a pool, it's absolutely essential because if you put those things in without having surveyed and you don't really know where your boundary is, you may be forced to pull it out. Uh, and you can be given a show cause notice by council to do that. 100%. Mm. And uh, all the neighbour might start arcing up if they go, your, your shed's on my land, your mm. pool's on my land. <laughs> now, Not so easy I to thought, pick up and move. No, God, no. <laughs> and such a cost and, oh, just a nightmare. So I bought it in 2002, forward. end of 2002, mm. fast forward 2010. And I lived in it as it was for a long time. I never lived in it. Ah, never. I rented it. It's always rented out, so it's always an investment, this property. Um, and, you know, it always had tenants, but it, because it was a bit small and a bit sort of run down, it was obviously very livable. But I, I always made sure that I had tenants by saying you could have a dog there. So, you know, tenants, particularly if they've got a big dog. And so I did. I wasn't worried about, obviously, the garden or anything yep. because I knew yep. I was going to do a renovation. So it was like the dog can just go to town. So I, I always had a tenant for that reason. So I got myself a fixed builder contract. So in 2010 was time to do the renovation. And this is sort of some interesting things that I learned through this. And I'm sure you have, do you say you've done nine renovations? Mm. Yeah. Okay. So you will definitely have been through this. You realize, I realized for the first time that architect design plans aren't exactly what the builder needs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because in a lot more I, detail. <laughs> Yeah, they need detailed drawings. Need so size piece of metal is going to hold the building up. <laughs> yeah, how does it join with something else, you know? And I I had no idea. I just figured, well, the architect designs the plans, you submit them to council, they get approved, um, and then the builder just builds it, right? No, not no. right. Um, and so, but the, to get seriously detailed plans drawn up, that costs a lot of money. And my builder said to me, oh, you don't need to worry about that. I can sort that out. And now I didn't know any better. So I went, okay. Now I'm lucky that guy could build. So the front room upstairs, it was sort of a bit of a, it was sort of built into the roof line. So there was some okay. odd, yeah. odd roof angles. Yeah. And, you know, and he was really proud of himself because he had to build the, into these odd roof angles with a nice ceiling and nice plaster work and all that sort of stuff. And he, he was really proud of himself and he took me up there and he said, oh, you know, I just want to show you how I finished this off. And and, and I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, big Looks deal. like a roof. Looks yeah, like what I hadn't realised until actually um, oh, sometime later anyway that actually I dodged a massive bullet there because I'm lucky that guy could build. If he couldn't build, and I've seen some examples, 
now of where the finishes have been left to the builder's taste. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and then the finished product is shoddy, like terribly finished or just really they've had no care in it. So I was really, really lucky, mm. but I did not realise how lucky I was until afterwards uh, when I started seeing evidence of what could have happened. So there's, there's a good lesson, and, and that is that the architectural plans often don't have enough detail and you have to be working very closely. I'm, I manage my builders very closely, um, and, and you have to be working with them tightly enough that they know where they have scope to make decisions and where they do not have scope to make decisions and where to, where to actually talk to you about these types of things because had that builder looked at that odd um, ceiling line and gone I'm just going to put a sheet over it I'm not going to work with these angles you would have lost lost a lot of your ceiling height mm. so so that's you know and, and, and that's a vastly different product and outcome to someone who's taken a lot of time to actually work in with with the arches and or whatever yeah. it was that you had in that in that um, ceiling area there are little things I mean you know I've since renovated two homes I have lived in and even the conversations I've had with builders on those about finishing like you know I might have a stone finish um, on a step for instance and then and then there's a gyprock wall like do you have a, a skirting board do you yeah. have a shadow line do you have a you know how do you actually join these two I didn't want to finish it yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and these little detailing, they make an enormous difference. So as I said, I was lucky, and but I didn't realise how lucky until afterwards. One thing also I didn't realise is how busy builders can be. Now <laughs> They can have multiple projects. Yeah, and look, I got a bit of a deal here because he was a contact of my ex's, right? And so obviously my ex is in the building game and he's actually put me in contact with this residential builder who, and I think that was a good, it was a good deal, like in terms of my building contract, I think it was quite a good price. And, um, but the consequence for that by getting sort of a fairly cheap in the whole scheme things build was that he had a lot of work on which meant that it should have, it really took three months longer than it should have. And I would go mm. to, on site regularly and there'd be nobody there. Oh, that's so frustrating when you're doing mm. a renovation, isn't it? Yeah. And time is money, you yep. know. And so they had a lot of, so there was a bit of a false economy there in terms of me getting a, a cheaper build, mm. but no, and I didn't hold them accountable to a time. And so that's really important. Uh, that a definite learning there. So some some opportunity costs that are lost in that in that time process mm. and the blowout of time frames. And if you don't have penalties in your, your construction um, uh, contract, it can end up costing you money. So for you, with it being an investment property, that could have been lost rental income. Yeah, so three months worth of lost re- rental income for people who are looking to move into the property. That may mean spending money on rent for a long mm. period of time than you'd actually budgeted for. So it can blow out your feasibility and eat into your contingencies really quickly if timeframes aren't managed or you don't have penalties in your contract. Exactly right. The other thing that I didn't do, I mean, and this, I, I don't know, I may have missed it, the, this little detail. So there was a mistake made by the architect and what that was, there's different door widths, right? So you can get a 600 mil wide door, 700 mil, eight, even up to a metre, right? Well, in the laundry, so downstairs there was a laundry, you walk through the laundry to get to the bathroom, which is quite a common sort of configuration. Um, And the door leading into the laundry was only 600 mils wide. Now, how wide is a washing machine? (laughs) It is 600. Yeah. (laughs) That's not fitting through a 600 door. No, I didn't notice it. The builder didn't pick it up. Obviously, the architect made a mistake in the first place, like, because you would imagine that you wouldn't deliberately 
put the door, make no, the door made too the door small. fit the space, not thought about the practicalities of what needs to go through the door. Well, you could fit a bigger door there. I don't even know why a small door was even on the drawing. I think it just was a mistake. Mm. I didn't pick it up. Builder didn't pick it up. Builder just built it. And this is an example about, you know, before the builder was really clever in terms of what they did with the roof line and this upstairs uh, bedroom, but downstairs in the laundry, they just didn't apply any thinking to this. Oh, yeah, okay, just build it 600 miles away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wasn't until I took the property manager through and the property manager just took one look at it and said, How tenants won't be able to get a washing machine through there. <laughs> And I've gone, oh, 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 no, you're kidding me. So surely they get, nah, nah, there's no way and then that's going to be a problem. You are going to have a problem. So I had to go back to the builder who was very unwilling to do anything and it ended up cost me $4,000 to get a, a bigger door. So Check, recheck, practically check, walk through in your mind. There's, <laughs> you just still miss things like that, yeah. And that's, yeah. you know, that's, again, your conversation with the builders around, if you see something that you think isn't going to work from a practical point of view, flag it with me. Don't just go ahead with it and assume that I'm, I, you know, I want it that way for some reason. So I think that's a big conversation to have with your builder as well because sometimes practicalities don't reveal themselves until you're actually physically walking into spaces. Totally. I would actually go so far as to say at least a weekly site meeting with them and I didn't do that. You know, mm. you think I would have but I didn't. You know, certainly in subsequent renovations I have but at that one you know, you just make that assumption. It's that you don't know what you don't know, yep. you know. That's exactly what it was. At least weekly. And, uh, and I always have minutes of the meetings that show who's agreed to do what mm. and every variation that is agreed to in writing. So really, really important that anything that is discussed with a builder or any changes are put into writing and on the, in the proper format. Totally, because you don't want a variation bill at the end of it. And they Ooh. go, you know. <laughs> We didn't agree to all this <laughs> or <laughs> yes, whatever. <laughs> How I funded it was a big mistake, right? This is um, this is a massive mistake, really, because this is actually the bit that unravels this whole story, right? So I did well in the sense, like people often say, I did well with that property. I renovated it, I made money, and I sold it at a profit. I could have done a hell of a lot better. And, in fact, I should still own it. Okay, so that's where the big lesson here is in not knowing what you don't know, mm. not getting your, your support crew lined up. Like if anybody wants to know why they should spend $749 doing uh, your first home buyer guide, this in itself should would pay for itself, right? <laughs> How I dealt with the process, I actually sold another house. So I, I did have my own home and I moved in with said builder partner and um you know within the six-year period of time I sold that house that I was previously my other home and I put the proceeds of that sale so the profit on that what I'd made on that property I put off the mortgage I did not go and get advice and set up an offset mm, account mm. I did not even um I just I didn't even know did not know what I did not know Put it so off in the putting mortgage. it off the loan, reducing the principal, great because it decreased your interest payments, but mm. you couldn't actually then get that money back out if you didn't have a redraw facility. It was there. It was gone. No. And what I did do, though, I did, use, I did redraw that money to pay for the renovation, right? But what would have been a better way of doing it would have been to create an offset account mm -hmm. and even borrow the money to do the renovation because I could have. I was able to borrow more, but I had this mindset of like, you don't want debt. Yeah. 
you know. <laughs> Keep in mind this was investment debt. This was absolutely not, this was deductible investment debt. Yeah. And the reason I sort of want to tell this story as well is because this is about, we say property is about long term, right? Now, and it comes back to non-investment debt in a minute and why it's important where your debt is, you know, Um and it's a little bit complicated, I know, for a first-home buyer, but you've got to fast-forward down the track sometimes because every decision you make now has consequences. So get it right now and you give yourself way better options down the track. Now, I've done well out of property, but I could have done better. And I think that that's, that's the lesson here. So I missed crucial tax offsets, right, by putting money off the mortgage even when I... Um, did at the time because that's not deductible debt. But anyway, I mean, what am I saying? That is deductible debt and I was, anyway, let's not get complicated with that. The thing was there was a knock-on effect, which I will get to, because in 2018 I needed funds to renovate my own home. So that's the one I'm living in now. And the most sensible thing to do was to sell this property that I renovated back in 2010. So by this time I'd owned it 16 years, right? Um, and the reason the most sensible thing to do was because I had a huge amount of equity in that property. In the investment property. And if I was going to borrow to do the renovation on my own home, I would have a huge amount of debt on my own home and a huge amount of equity in investment property. And that's an inefficient way to have debt because the debt on my own home is not tax deductible and the debt on the investment property is. So I had it completely asked about. And the reason it was asked about was because I didn't make use of that offset account. Um, so you, didn't I know pay- you didn't know about mortgage strategy at the time. And exactly. anyone who's who's interested, we're, we're not giving financial advice here. We're just simply opening your eyes to the options that are out there. But we did do an episode with David Johnston from Property Planning Australia, episode nine, that yep. talks about mortgage strategy. So a lot more detail from an expert in his field in that episode. Absolutely. And it's so critical because I think my accountant had a throwaway line at some point, oh, you shouldn't pay off the mortgage, but didn't actually explain to me why. <laughs> I did not. And I'm like, why wouldn't you pay off your mortgage? That's ridiculous. You know, mm-hmm. makes mm-hmm. no sense. Ah, learned the hard way. Now we know. Um, and once you've done it, you can't undo it. And so I paid cash for the renovations instead of borrowing money. So effectively use that redraw. Uh, where I potentially could have borrowed money. And and maybe I couldn't, but I never looked into it. I think that's the most important thing. Mm. But what that meant that once again is that I had equity and people go, well, what are you complaining about? You had equity. Yes, and and that's great. I'm not complaining about having equity. It's just where it was. I didn't want all my borrowing to be on my own home, of course. But the other thing too, and what actually happened in 2000 sort of, 16 and 17 was that lending policies change following the Royal Commission into banking. Who would have anticipated that? <laughs> Who knew that was coming? I know. And when it came time to renovate my own home, the banks basically went, you can't do it. You've got, you have already got too many borrowings. And so that's so, a borrowing capacity. And we do it, see this question come up quite exactly. a lot in forums on, you know, online and, and also questions on the social wall in, in the Home Bar Academy. Um, and that is around limitations to borrowing capacity. Mm. So sometimes it doesn't matter how much equity you've got, you may have actually maxed out your ability to borrow money um, according to the bank's policies. And that's what I've done. So, you know, before, God, banks would throw money at me. 
you know, like because I had I property, buying a property had equity. where I simply had to sign a document that said I can afford to repay this loan. Wow. Yeah. That was the entire. So that was a, a low doc lending um, environment in about 2006. Um, yeah. Wow. Sign a document. I can, I can repay this. It's <laughs> just crazy. I mean, we're a long way away from that now. We are a long way. Now, but, you know, maybe we'll find Which is a good ground. thing. But you know, it's a good thing and a tough thing. So, so therefore, I was I was faced with well, how long do I wait before I renovate my own home? And look, mm. the timing was crap, really, because it was actually the bottom of the market, 2018. But I didn't know how long that that would go on for. And I also and was pretty experienced by now, Veronica. You, you had a lot of lessons. Yeah, by this stage. By yeah, yeah. So you, you were thinking things cycles. through and opportunity costs and risk analysis, and you're, you're in a much better headspace. <laughs> education yes more much more critical in my thinking around market Mm. timing and all the rest of it I I didn't know how long the bottom you know would be bottomed out for I also Mm. was totally and utterly sick of renting you know because I was renting while I was you know got plans approved on on this house that I'm in now and I just want to get on with things so I made a call I bit the bullet and I decided to list that house right and it sold so I paid uh, 470000 for it back in 2002. The renovation cost the building, uh, it was $290,000, which was the build um, Plus 4000 for the uh, laundry. Yeah, yeah, plus 4000 for the laundry. And the cost, the, um, I think the sort of consultant's cost to get it approved was something like 25000 So I sold it for $1.55 million in September 2018. Now, it was tough because I, I tell you what, it would have sold a year earlier, I think it was comparable properties were selling for 1.7. So I knew that I was taking a bit of a dip, but that was an educated decision and I was okay with that, right? Mm. So I came so to- eyes wide open. Yeah, yeah. Pros, cons, risk analysis, decision-making tools, actual ready- you, you actually made an eyes wide open decision. I absolutely did. Now, mm. the big mistake, obviously, was that I backed myself into a corner financially and I lost the opportunity to time my sale. That is if I wanted to get on with my life, right? So, and I made that call. So that's fine. But that was some of my mistake was made back in 2007 because that's actually when I sold the other property and put the money in the on the mortgage. So that's actually when I made that right. mistake. So it was 11 years later that I paid for that mistake, put it that way. I chose a great agent to sell it, and I am absolutely confident that she squeezed every last drop out of that um, out of that market at the time. Yeah. And, in fact, there was a vastly superior property in a much better position in the same street that was double-fronted, freestanding, bigger land, similar accommodation but just all one level and that sold for only $45,000 more like two weeks earlier. Mm. And that was because that was not a great agent selling that house. So mm. I made a great decision in my agent choice. Um, and I sold at a time, though, when it was the market was described, being described as catching a falling knife. Oh. <laughs> that is a tough market to be a seller in and a great yeah. market to be a buyer in. A great market. Um, so by October that year, I had the money in the bank and enough after my capital gains tax bill. So I obviously had to pay tax as well um, to pay for my home extension, which started in June 2019. Yay! I moved in in February 2020, which is just before the uh, <laughs> just the, in time to lock down. <laughs> just in time to be locked in, which was fantastic. Just had a nice um, house to live in, <laughs> and I have a beautiful home now. Absolutely beautiful home, and I'm not going anywhere in a hurry. But get this. You'll never believe it. And, in fact, my agent rang me a year later and said, you'll never believe this. 
Um, but the owners, the person who bought your house has put it on the market and I'm going to sell it again. And I'm like, oh, okay. The market, market improved had, by that time. market had improved by quite a lot. Want to, any guesses for how much? <laughs> I'm guessing a lot more. Yep. 1.77, so $220,000 more in, in a year. Months. Oh, that's pain. It still hurts a little bit, I have yeah, to say. Yeah. Mind was, you, build you, prices you have gone up, I think. You made the decision at the time to do something that was, you know, it's like going through divorce. You make decisions at the time that are right for you when you look back and think, geez, I wish I'd been able to hold on to that one. Yes. In fact, now I keep thinking, wow, what would it be worth now? <laughs> Only, you know, a little bit later, but... Do not think about that. I have in, I've reinvested that money in property, of course, and in, in, a, in a much more tax-effective way. But the moral of the story really is that you don't know what you don't know, as Megan is wont to say you are many, many times. Mm-hmm. So you've got to get good advice. You've got to find out what you don't know. And I think the worst thing for me, being a real estate agent at the time, was that I knew just enough to think I knew enough. Dangerous. <laughs> Way more dangerous than not than knowing I knew nothing. Well, they always say an expert is simply a, a person who has a collection of experiences and mistakes that they can share with somebody else. And, and, and here you are with a massive collection of, and we both have made, you know, my first property that I, I raised up and built under, I didn't put the termite barrier in. So I couldn't actually finish the renovation. So, <laughs> you know. It's a bit so of a no-brainer. Not too bad on your <laughs> side of things. <laughs> Again, you know, that was 1998 and and, and I, it was way before I was in property, didn't know what I didn't know. But then, then we've got this collection of experiences and mistakes that we can share with people that at least points them opens your eyes to say, oh, before I jump in and do this, I wonder if there's something else I need to know, if there's more information I need to collect, if there's more due diligence I need to do, is there is there a better way, is there an expert in this particular lane, this, this piece of information that I need that I can talk to that will tell me about the options? You may still go in the same direction, but at least you've looked at everything from every angle and said, yeah, this is the best option for me. Yeah given the pros, the cons, the compromises and so forth that you've always got to make when, when you're buying property. Um, so I think this is this is such a wonderful case study because you learnt a lot along the way, but you had some information, you had some knowledge, you were in the industry, but you were quite green in the industry at the time. And mm. as you say, a little bit of knowledge is often more dangerous than none because you think you know it, but you don't know what you don't know. So thank you so much for sharing that with us and and being open and honest with everything that you learned out of that. And, you know, that's always you. You're very forthright and open and you you call a spade a spade. So I think there's a lot of things that people will take away from this, not just from a renovation point of view, but actually from a how do you think about property, not just for today, but for the long term? And what are the impacts that the decisions you make today might have on the long term? Yeah. So... There's good and bad in this in the sense, um, you know, missed opportunity and certainly it did its job in terms of made money for mm. me and gave me the opportunity to renovate my home and all the rest of it. As I said, my big message is it could have been better had I only knew what I didn't know and got good advice along the way. So <laughs> hopefully you can take a lot out of that. And I would encourage anyone who's thinking about renovating. We did an interview with uh, Rebecca Morgan, no relation, um, a few, oh, a couple of months back. 48, was, episode 48. Episode 48 on how to how to look at buying, buying to renovate. Your, mm. yeah, your first home when, you, when mm. you're renovating. So um, 
Go and check that out. In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff. 